Good morning, church family. Well, as we continue in worship, we are going to go into our next sermon in the series, Stories of Grace. Now, among other things, the summer of 2020 is forever going to be known as the summer of the perfect lawn. That's right. Bags of mulch, fertilizer, grass seed is flying off the shelves quicker than local hardware stores can keep up with demand. Neighbors are eyeing the competition secretly. They're edging out their lawns, putting in prize shrubs, and of course, the grass has to be highly manicured. It's amazing what a season of lockdown can do. Now, Katie and I have caught a little bit of the fever. I mean, I'm not going to lie. We've been spreading mulch. We've been buying plants. We even put in an apple tree this year. And I really enjoy yard work. I I like the Uh, getting out in nature aspect of it. I like doing a job and seeing it come to completion. But there's one part of yard work that I can't stand, and that is clearing out beds. Now, why is that? Well, it's because every time I do it, I meet Kate Cobb's state flower, poison ivy. I mean, that insidious little plant Every year, I'm getting into the gardens, I'm starting to do the work, and I say to myself, I'm going to be particularly careful this year, I'm not going to get it on me, I'm going to wash up afterwards, and every single year, I get it. That's right, I am itching all over right now. Now, it really is a sneaky plant. When you touch poison ivy, say with your hand or with a tool, uh, it releases this clear oil. So you get a little bit of that oil on your hand, and you go and you touch a part of your body. Normally, it starts with the inner elbow for whatever reason. And then a couple of days later, you break out in a patch of irritation. You start scratching that. You get more of the oil. You touch another part of your body, and it spreads everywhere. As I was thinking about how this works, I began to wonder if our regrets work on us just like that poison ivy oil. We've all made decisions that we knew were wrong. It's kind of like walking through that patch of poison ivy. We said to ourselves, you know, I'll be fine. But the problem is we pick up that clear oil and then it causes irritating patches of guilt. We scratch at it, but the guilt just seems to spread more. So how do we deal with that? How do we move past guilt? Well, this morning in our Stories of Grace, we're going to be looking at a moment in King David's life when he walked through a serious patch of poison ivy. And isn't it interesting? Last week, we looked at 2 Samuel 9, and in that story, King David is the hero of Mephibosheth's story. But now, just two chapters later in the Bible, we look at one of King David's darkest moments. That's how easy it is to walk through a patch of poison ivy. I mean, one moment you are in the clear, the next you pick up that clear oil and you tell yourself everything's going to be okay. It won't cause any irritation. I'll be just fine. Only you won't be just fine. So let's pick up the story. David's regret story begins the same way all regret stories begin. There's an error in judgment where he convinces himself that doing something deeply immoral will not uh, cause him any harm, will be satisfying, and can be done anonymously. In 2 Samuel verses, uh, chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, it summarizes what happened. 
It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful, and David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not that Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And as you look at that section, notice first that David's at a decision point. I mean, he's clearly tempted. And he's thinking to himself, she's beautiful. But then he finds out she's married. And then the thought process spirals out of control. Well, but I'm king, and, and kings get to make whatever kind of decisions kings want to make. And besides, all of the soldiers and her husband's off at war right now. I could make this decision, and no one would ever know about it. Or maybe you haven't had the power or the opportunity to make a decision like this. Last time I checked, I've never been king of anything. But I think we can relate to the thought process. I can do this. I won't pick up any of that clear oil. I'll be just fine. Well, David makes the decision. Verse 4 tells us, So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, we're not given many of the details of Bathsheba's willingness, but I, as I read this story, get the sense that she was not willing In fact, it seems to me like there are power dynamics involved here. Think about it. David's king. Can she refuse him? Can she tell him no? Maybe she could have, but she doesn't know that. And when you look at what the Bible tells us in terms of this situation, it always places the exclusive blame on King David. Well, the consequences of decision comes next, verse 5. And the woman conceived... And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now look at that story, how quickly we're seeing the sequence of events. Now, most decisions in life don't work like this, right? You don't move from decision to consequence in a matter of verses. But the Bible is showing us a a key point here. And the idea is this, that our decisions do have consequences. And it likes to put those two closely together. Life doesn't tend to work that way. A lot of times we make a decision and it takes some time for the consequence to unfold. And like life too, one error in judgment tends to lead to more error in judgments. And that's what happens in David's story. He calls Bathsheba's husband home from war in an attempt to create a cover-up. Now his name, as the Bible told us, is Uriah. He's an honorable man. He comes back from war. He refuses to go home and be with his wife, even though David encourages him to do so. Because he says, look, all the other soldiers that are fighting off in the front, they're my fellow soldiers. I can't do this to them. Well, they're not enjoying uh, all of the quality and comfort of home. Well, David persists, and he tries to get Uriah to go home a second time. Uriah refuses. So then David abuses power just like his predecessor, King Saul. He asks uh, General Joab to send Uriah to the front where the battle was most heated and then asks Joab to pull the soldiers away so that Uriah would fall in battle. Now, beyond all of these bad decisions, David moves to an even more dangerous place. You see, Instead of 
taking ownership of what he's done in this situation, which he should have done from the beginning, he starts playing a life of pretend. He starts playing pretend with himself. He starts playing pretend with everyone else. And he even tries to play pretend with the God of the universe. He pretends like he's never touched that clear oil. And it's interesting how easy it is to fall into that trap. You know, generally I can look out and and I can see what someone else has done. I can see their sin, but it's so easy for me to play pretend with myself. And the only thing that will wake you up when you're playing pretend is a cold dose of reality. And so God, knowing this, sends Nathan the prophet. Now Nathan caught David's attention by sharing a story of an incredibly selfish, cruel, rich man who stole a neighbor's lamb. Now, David is the king's people. He's like a blue-collar king. He cares about the little guy. And so when he hears this story, he grows enraged, and he wants to take matters into his own hands. He says to Nathan, tell me where this guy lives. I'm going to take care of this situation. And so Nathan gives David the GPS coordinates. And when David plugs the coordinates in, guess what? The address leads back to his home address. He's been caught red-handed. Now, here's what I find, though, that's incredible. When you look at this story, you should be asking yourself the question, why does God treat David differently than Saul? Didn't we just see last week that God removed Saul from power because he abused his power? And here in this story, David does the same thing. But what we see in the scriptures is that there's a distinct difference in the way that David and Saul respond to God's correction. You see, Saul felt badly that he got caught. He didn't intend to change. He just didn't like the idea that God caught him for what he was doing. David, on the other hand, he says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. There's no excuses. There's no elaborate reasons for why he had to do it. Just plain ownership. And because he owns it, God immediately extends him grace. In fact, Nathan says this to him, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. So the difference between Saul and David is confession. In confession, I personally own responsibility for my words and my behavior without excuse and without shifting the blame. And God in the Bible extends grace to men and women who take personal responsibility. Why? Because God has one overarching plan for your life, and it can be summed up in one word, change. And if that's God's agenda for your life, then your agenda should be change as well. Confession moves us from playing pretend to saying, God, I'm ready for you to get to work in me. Do the work that only you can do. Well, in the Bible, David models genuine confession for us in a beautiful psalm, Psalm 51. It's raw, it's real, it's transparent. This psalm tells us that God's willing and ready to forgive our deepest regrets. It shows us that we don't need to hide and play pretend. 
it moves us through the motions of what the real work that's required to appropriate God's grace so that we no longer walking around everywhere scratching and itching with guilt, but instead can walk into the freedom of God's grace. And I can't wait to share this psalm with you because this is a psalm that we can apply. This is God's poison ivy remedy. I'm going to be reading to you from the New Living Translation, and as we make our way through, we'll stop and see how we can apply it. Let's look at the first two verses. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. So as we move through the art of confession, first we see that real confession begins with turning to God for forgiveness. Now, in that first verse, David quotes Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. We looked at that verse a couple of weeks ago in Joseph's story because it's a key verse in the Old Testament describing God's character. I want to read it to you from the message paraphrase so that you can hear it with fresh ears. God, God, a God of mercy and grace, endlessly patient, so much love, so deeply true, Loyal in love for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Still, he doesn't ignore sin. Now, this verse on God's character comes to us from the book of Exodus when Israel has just sinned against God with the golden calf. It's a low watermark in their history. They build a calf and essentially in this sin, they're denying God or at least trying to reshape God in an image that they want God to be like. Now, David knows the Bible well, and so as he looks at this particular uh, passage of Scripture, he says to himself, look, if God can forgive Israel for doing this, the golden calf, then God can also forgive me for my deep regret. These aren't David's words. They're God's words. They reflect God's character. He knows that God's gracious, that God's kind, that God's compassionate, that God's patient with sinners. We also see in this passage that David knows where he can take his sin, that he can take his sin to God because God can deal with sin. In verse 2, he asks God to cleanse him. Now, isn't that what we all want? Don't we want cleansing from God? Because of sins like that, that clear poison ivy oil. We want the oil cleared up. We don't want just a topical remedy that takes away the itch for a moment while the rash continues to spread. No, we want something to take care of the substance. We want it removed from our heart and soul. And we can't do that ourselves. The only thing we can do is scratch and spread the itch. But God is uniquely capable of dealing with real guilt. In the New Testament, the Apostle John tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what God's able to do. You see, as we move forward in this art of confession, it begins with trusting God, but we also need to see something else, that real confession involves agreeing with God. Now, that might be the most humbling part of confession. 
Paul David Tripp says that we erect systems of self-justification. Basically, that is where I rewrite my own history. I convince myself that something that God says that is wrong really isn't that wrong. I begin to diminish sin, and I begin to look at sin and say that it's beautiful. Uh, In this story with David and Bathsheba, clearly he didn't see the tragedy that was about to evolve. He didn't see murder plots. He just saw instant gratification. And the same is true for us when we're tempted. Uh, When we're about to engage in the sin of gossip, we don't see the danger of the sin. We don't see how it can defame someone's character and taint our heart as we talk about them. Or think of it like this, a child who's about to disobey their parents. They don't see the danger of the disobedience. In fact, they feel the the rush and surge of power that they're about to achieve as they get to do things their way, the temporary freedom. Or what if you cheat on your taxes? Well, again, you're not looking at the danger. You're thinking about how you're going to spend all that money. But here's what we see in the Bible. We know that God's grace has visited our hearts when we truly see sin for what it is. You see, in this psalm, David deals with sin in that way. He uses three different words to describe it. Rebellion, iniquity, and sin. Why does he do that? Does it need three different words? Well, it's to emphasize it. It's to show us how serious it is. Listen to the next three verses, or four verses. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. The ESV translation says, brought forth in iniquity. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Friends, that's what agreement sounds like. He's not sugarcoating his actions. He calls them for what they are, their rebellion. In fact, there's a core theological truth that David tells us in the first part of verse 4, that when we sin, God is always the most offended party. Now, he's not saying that he hasn't sinned against Bathsheba or Uriah. Of course he sinned against them. But what he's acknowledging here is that God is the most offended party because God is the divine creator and lawgiver. You can think of it like this. When you say harsh words to your spouse, you are also offending God with those words because God made her in his image. Or when you choose to cheat the system, You're also offending the one who imbued the universe with moral law. David understands that. He understands that his sin is not just horizontal, but it's also vertical. He also acknowledges that God's ways are right. And that's the second part of verse 4. You will be proved right in what you say and your judgment against me is just. Now, friends, this is where we're really getting into heart change. In agreeing with God, we are syncing up with God. Just like our phones and our laptops need to be synced up, our hearts need to be synced up with God's heart. And that's what David's praying right now. That's what he's saying in this psalm. 
We need to be in sync with God. And here's the deal. That's why your personal quiet time every day matters so much. Because our hearts are not in sync with God as a normal state of affairs. And so when we come to God in the word and in prayer, the heart gets synced up. Now, how do we know that the heart isn't in sync? Why are we so prone to get out of sync? Well, well, David says, you were born that way. Even in your mother's womb. Sin has a long-term and far-reaching influence in your life. It's not a freak accident when we sin. It's a part of our character. And that's why God's overarching plan for your life is change. And when you realize that, it changes how you pray. Look at David's prayer. He prays, God, change my heart. And you see that in verses 7 through 12. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And make me willing to obey you. Have you ever found yourself asking the question, why did I do that? Why did I do that? Well, I have. There have been many times where I've behaved so selfishly, and even in the moment, even as I'm doing it, I know it's wrong. And yet I persist. So just like David sees in this psalm, we all need to see that we need to be praying for heart change. God, create in me a clean heart. Basically, what we're saying in this prayer is, I don't want to keep circling back and having the same conversation over and over again. I want to change inwardly. I want to love doing the right thing. Now, our hearts, as David said, weren't oriented like that initially. Initially, we loved walking through the poison ivy patch. We said to ourselves, oh, it's much more desirable to be here than the walk in the boundaries that God has established where there's true freedom. But listen to what happens as you grow. The more you grow, the more you desire God's ways. The more you start looking at the poison ivy and saying, you know what? I'm good. I don't want anything to do with that. I've been there, done that, have the scars to prove it. In fact, I see that doing things God's way is so much more delightful and enjoyable. So how do we apply this? Well, I think this needs to be infused in our prayer life, a daily prayer, if you will. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Continue to refine who you are making me into. Help me to become that special limited edition version of Jesus that you designed in eternity past for me to be the person that I was always meant to be. I'll tell you, the more you pray that prayer, the more your life will change. So let's continue in this art of confession. We've talked about trusting God. We've talked about agreeing with God. We've also seen that we need to be praying for heart change. But there's a final step, and that step is appropriating God's forgiveness. Because too many Christians live in limbo. They intellectually know that God extends forgiveness, but they do not appropriate it. 
They say things to themselves like, oh, I know that God has forgiven me, but I still need to do these four or five things, and then I can start being used by God again. Or they go through this tension in their heart where they've prayed for forgiveness, and the Bible tells us that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, and yet they keep coming back and asking God to forgive them for the same thing. It's like, instead of having a Christian walk, it's a circling where I just keep circling back to a moment where I have deep regret. So how do you move forward? How do you get on a journey where you're moving forward? David shows us that in this psalm. Look at verses 13 to 17. Then I will teach your ways to rebels, and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Now notice that David expects three positive outcomes as he appropriates God's grace. First, we see it in verse 13, that he expects to have a new story to tell people who are far from God. You see, this verse is clearly evangelistic. He's not proud of what he's done, but he sees clearly that God can use his healing to help bring healing into the lives of others. That's what I love about this God is when he changes us, he gives us a mission. And that's our vision here at this church. Worship is coming into right relationship with God. Transformation is that inward change that we're talking about right now. And then mission is the idea that God wants you to be a part of the change of someone else's life. And how do we do that? Well, part of how we do it is what David's modeling for us right here. He takes his deepest regret moment. He opens up his prayer journal and he shows us how God brought healing to his life. I got to tell you, church, we need to become a church of storytellers, a church that tells our stories of grace and passes those along to other people. I've heard many of your stories. They're incredible stories. And I know that God will use your unique story in somebody's life. In fact, your story could be the story that God uses to open someone's eyes to his grace. So tell it. Tell them about what God's done, and then tell them about the Jesus who changed your life. We also see that David anticipated a new joy in worship. I love how this psalm moves from a guilt feeling to a happiness feeling. Now, I find in Christianity, a lot of it has been presented to us as this kind of dour, pensive mood Not everyone does it this way, of course, but it it tends to be one of those things where people think it's all about guilt, and it's not all about guilt. In fact, I've come to find through the scriptures that the dominant mood of Christianity is happiness, is joy, is satisfaction. In fact, David models this for us in verse 12. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Isn't that how we should feel if the God of grace has intervened in our life and changed it? 
And then that leads for him a, a more passionate worship experience. That's verses 14 and 15. The grace is overflowing in his heart. When God forgives us uh, of our sins, the overflow of that needs to be things like joy and singing and gladness and thanksgiving. That's what it's all about. Again, it does no good to keep just circling back. God wants a forward-moving people. He wants a people who have been changed by his grace and are satisfied because they have that right relationship with God. Lastly, David acknowledges now that he more deeply understands God's desires. Look at verse 17. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Listen, church. God is not looking for an external people. He does not want a people who just go through the motions. He does not want a people who just pay him lip service. He doesn't want a church where people say, oh, you know what, I go to church because I have to, or I read my Bible in the morning and I pray because otherwise I know God will be disappointed with me. He doesn't want a people who give not out of a a heart overflowing with generosity, but out of an obligation. And you know why God doesn't want that? The same reason you don't want it. That's not how good relationships work. Good relationships involve inner loyalty. And that's what God's looking for. We see this in another story of grace, one of my favorite stories of grace in John chapter 4. You see, in this story of grace, Jesus meets a woman who struggled because she just couldn't win at the external obedience game. She was covered with those irritating patches of guilt. She had made a lot of sinful choices. She was married four times all of those marriages, and now she's with the fifth guy. They're not married, and she would go to the well at odd hours because in that culture, that's not socially acceptable in any way, shape, or form, and she doesn't want to get the stares of the other ladies at the well. Worst of all, though, she was stuck on the idea that God was looking for external perfection. In fact, she has an argument with Jesus. Oh, you know, you Jews, you say that you're supposed to worship at the temple, but I know that we're supposed to worship at this sacred mountain. And I've met people like this. They can't live under the obligation of their own strict system, and yet they're convinced that that rigid system is right. Well, Jesus turns our external notions upside down in John 4, 23. He says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. That's inner loyalty. Spirit basically means from our heart, from our inner desires. Truth, of course, means that God wants us to worship in line with what is true. Not inventing a lowercase g God, but worshiping the uppercase g God. This is what David understood. Isn't that incredible? He understood this some 3,000 years before Jesus. That God is looking for people who will genuinely love him and follow him from the heart. And that leads me to a final question as we close. Where are you on your spiritual journey? 
does Jesus have your inner loyalty right now? You know, I want to put this in social media terms because we're all online right now. But are you, as you're seeking after God, as you're engaging in following God, are you just a viewer? You know what a viewer does. You get on your Facebook page or any other social media site, and you kind of check in on a video for 10 or 15 seconds. You consume it, and then you move on. Is that how you're treating your relationship with Jesus right now? I don't think that's the kind of relationship that God wants. He doesn't want a consuming relationship. In fact, God is looking for subscribers. What does it mean to subscribe? Well, it means that you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus and that you're committing from the heart to follow him because you believe that his way is best. Now, why is it all about Jesus? Why do we always come back to Jesus in these conversations? Well, it's because Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity who came to us. He lived a perfect life. Uh, You want to talk about, you know, how we all have deep regrets? Jesus had none. He lived without sin, the Bible says. A righteous life. And then the Bible says that he went to the cross and he died in our place. So we get his perfect life and he takes our sin upon himself. The Bible says that if a person places their faith in that reality, that Jesus died in the cross for your sins, that he rose again from the dead, that that person will be saved. Friend, that's how you move from viewer to subscriber. And God is looking for this from you. He wants you to subscribe. So let me ask you this morning, are you ready to start subscribing? If you are, follow along with me in this prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the only Savior in the risen Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I want you to come into my life at this moment. As best as I know how, I turn my life over to your care and control. Amen.